missed the first five minutes of the talk. It's just a note for the recorder. The, that spacious relationship then to life is a big part of how, of how we experience liberation, how we experience freeness. It's just as more sp just being more spacious with what comes along, less compelled, less fixated, less uh, reacted, reactive, less activated by experience. There's more space and space for what happens, right? What's the image? There's some. Uh, you know, if you have a small, if you have a, sm a glass, if you have a glass of water and I put a drop of ink into it, it'll colour the whole glass of water, right? If you have a very, very big uh, container of water, if you have the whole river and put a drop of ink in, it doesn't make any difference to the water. Right? So the more, the more the more watery our mind, you know, the more space there is when a particular imprint, a particular um, phenomena arises, a particular experience lands, the more spacious we are in how we receive it, the less perturbed we are by that experience. Normally when we use the word space, we refer to physical space. When we look at that quality outwardly, and that's what we call it, space. And it's interesting you know, that we've got a name for it. We have a name generally for things, but space isn't really. Space is a, is a non-thing. Right? It's a negative thing. We recognize things because of the non-thing that also makes them up, right? If I hold up the dorje, the dorje is dependent, you being able to see the doje, recognize the doje, is completely dependent on the space around the doje. The space gives the doje its definition just as much as the doje gives it its definition. Right? There was no space, there could be no doje. There was no recognition of space, there could be no recognition of doje. But attention fixates, right? Attention moves towards the the, the detail, the obvious, and the space is kind of implicit. We don't think, when I say, oh, look at the dojo, we don't think, oh, yes, and what about all the space around it? But the space is, has to be part of the experience. Has to be. So space is, you know, it's open, it's infinite, and it's ineffable. When we, when we, if we go the other direction, right, instead of going outwards into what we call outer space, if we go towards what we call, it, might, we don't really call it, we might call it inner space, we tend to use a different word, we call it mind or consciousness. But it actually has, it's, it, it, show, it has the, the same properties. Right? Inner space is infinite. When we're very identified with body and mind in a conventional sense of things, we don't think of it as infinite. We think of it as about this big, right? as head-shaped. We think, oh, my mind, space of mind is about 20, centimet 20 centimeters across and 20 centimeters up and down. 
But look at all the stuff that goes on there. Could you really fit all that into a box, this shape? As we attend to, not the idea of mind, the idea of mind that most of us have, that it somehow is, is roughly um, synonymous with brain, which clearly isn't. And when we attend just to the experience of mind, we find our mind, just like outer space, is vast. Edgeless. Right? Just like space is edgeless. Mind is edgeless. You can't find the edges of your mind. You can't get somewhere and think, oh, boom. And open, infinite, edgeless, ineffable. However much we might talk about mind, and however much we say we're practicing with our mind, or training our mind, or exploring our mind, how many of you could give a really good definition of what mind is. I mean, I, I couldn't. It's, it's mysterious. Oh, my mind, saying somewhat authoritatively, my mind. I've been working with my mind. When you go back from the treat, oh, what were you doing? I was exploring my mind. Well, what exactly do you mean by that? What exactly is this mind you're exploring? Oh, good question. You better hope nobody asks you that. <laughs> And just like when I, we held up the doje, right? an object gets its, its, um, thing, its sense of thingness, it gets its definition from the space around it, so too with the inner, sp- with the inner space of mind. Right? The attention goes to the object that arises, the thought that arises, the sensation that arises the memory that arises, the impulse that arises, the desire that arises, the emotion that arises. But how do we recognize? How come we can see a thought, know a thought? How come we can recognize an impulse, relate to an impulse, follow an impulse? An object arises, There has to be space in the mind. We feel like, you know, when we're fixated, the more, just like we were just saying before, the more fixated we are on the object, the less we recognize the space. But this is a practice of non-fixation or defixation or recognizing and understanding fixation so as to vitaka, Right. Rec- point two, recognize, see the object, vichara, get to know the, the habits, the, the way of generating experience out of the object, and viveka, being able to actually ha- f- see, feel into, know the quality of space around the object. So that which we, that which we can recognize in what we call outer space, we can also recognize an inner space. And they, they support each other. Contemplating in this way supports each other. So one way to contemplate that is in, out, in outer space. Mm. Moving around, right, in, during the day while you're here. Attention, of course, goes to objects. And, uh, 
the physical objects around, or goes to the the path, the river, the bamboo, whatever's being seen, the bird song, whatever's being heard, the smell, lunch, etc. And it's normal, just like if I hold the doji up, attention goes there. And yet one can contemplate the space in the midst of. Do that right now. Attention here, I'm sitting here speaking, so hopefully some attention at least is coming Right towards me, I'm, that's, I'm you know, trying to to appear in space, and I mean not trying, but that's you know. Yeah, so the attention comes, but just notice right, the space around, just the outer space as well. How, what is it? You don't have to move away from the object, right? but if we, or unconsciously or automatically. We kind of get pulled. Our attention gets pulled out of ourselves and into the object. Right? It's like we leave ourselves to go to the object. Oh, what's he like? What's he saying? What do I think? Oh yeah. We do that often in relationship, right? In communication, we sit with somebody, we start to talk. It's like we go out. We try to we try to meet the person, or we have the experience of the person, or know some contact with the person by our attention going out to them, into the object. But actually, one of the ways we can just stay, embodied attention is one way we can stop going out to. Another way is just attend to the space around. What happens? What happens when instead of just all the attention going to the object, where you recognize the space that gives context to the context the object makes mind feel more spacious and more spacious mind it gives room there's room room to relax room to kind of slow down and we have space where we feel spacious and we sense that there's space for what's here that naturally tends towards Ease. We kind of recognize that. We talk about space. Oh, I, know I want some space. I need some space. It's kind of mantra of a busy life. I want some space. Oh, I'm so looking forward to going on retreat. I really have some space. Look forward to the weekend. Get some space. And, you know, as I often point out to people, we say we want space, we love space. When we get some space, we get to the weekend, no duties, no responsibilities at all. Don't know what to do. We fill up the space very quickly. But aside from that, even the idea when we say, I need some space, why do we feel we need some space? Most essentially, we say it's because I'm busy or um, whatever. But what actually is happening, if we feel the lack of space or the need for space, it's because attention is so fixated on objects that we feel that there's no space. Space is infinite. Space is ever-present. Try existing without space. It would be impossible, maybe in a black hole, but I don't think you'd be existing in a black hole. You'd be compressed into cosmic uh, nothingness. 
if, if we took the space out, you know the, what the astrophysicists say, that all the matter in the, in the universe, if you took the space out, it could all fit in a matchbox. Because right? everything is just composed of space, like we were saying this morning. So how it kind of starts to sound a bit weird, preposterous. Oh, I need some space. Uh, hello? <laughs> Where do you think you are? In a, in a vacuum? Oh, you're in wide open, limitless, infinite, exp- ever-expanding, vast, mysterious, ineffable <coughs> space. Apparently, as if it wasn't already vast and infinite enough, the universe is constantly expanding. It's more and more. You want space, you're getting more and more and more and more and more and more every, every moment. So when we find ourselves, oh, feeling I need space, I want space. Rather than when am I going to get some space or how am I going to get some space or what do I need to do to get some space, One of the things, we just shift the attention from the things that seem to be taking up the space, my duties, my uh, stories, etc., to the space that's here. Like I say, here's Martin talking, but what about the space that's also here? The space in which this form is appearing, right? Space around me. The space out of which my words are coming. Space. That gives context to the experience of sitting here. So while moving around, one can really contemplate the, the always available nature of space, and particularly in the visual field. Right? The visual, visual sense is the one most easily dominated by fixating on detail. With hearing, it's the, the ineffableness or the spaciousness is, is more easy to access. Right? When you use sound as an object, Meditation. It's like <whistles> bird song. It's kind of the sense of of openness or, or spaciousness is much more easily accessible. The sense that the sound arises from space or silence and fades back into silence. It's often quite easy to, to touch and not just to experience, but to have that sense of experience inform a quality of intimacy with life being a kind of part of this uh, spacious life accessed through the soundscape. And then we open our eyes and, oh, back in the world of things, objects, I'm here, that's there. These are the people in the room, there's lunch, let's go. So particularly in the visual field, when there's the, this kind of, you know, the certain refinement and brightness of mind that's, that's here, right? in practice, just that way of contemplating spaciousness, the always available nature of space, outwardly. And then letting that feed very directly into the same inner movement. When one finds one's attention compelled by whatever, some desire, some view, some sense of self, some uh, thought stream, letting yourself feel, oh, how come? Just like how I can, how come I recognize the door, Jay, because of the space around, how come I can even know that this object is here? 
because mind is inherently spacious. Mind objects appear in the space of consciousness. And there again, what does it do to our experience when we, uh, we acknowledge the space in which experience is appearing? There's the same kind of oh, allowing that, that quality of viveka, allowing a certain oh, settling, softening, opening. And then we find we're actually able to um, inhabit the spaciousness of mind, know the spaciousness of mind directly, explore the spaciousness of mind, be the space instead of just being all the objects, I'm this, I'm that. Usually we either feel like we're the owner of the objects, this is my experience, or we feel we are the objects, I am this, I am angry. Anger appears, I am angry. Peacefulness appears, I I am peaceful. So we either have the the I, me and my realm, I take up all the space, and then I am what's happening, or I have what's happening. Not very spacious. So just seeing ways in which we can recognize, trust, make room for, settle into, contemplate the nature of what we call mind, which is basically made of spaciousness, what we could rather clumsily call inner spaciousness. Clumsily, because where we start to see that the distinction between what we call inner space and outer space is kind of very fine, because they're so similar, as I say, in the qualities that they share. And also the qualities of space, right? Just outer space can have a different feel. Space can feel inviting, trustworthy. Um... Or space can feel awkward, unfriendly, what we call an atmosphere. So I went into this place, there was a weird atmosphere. What do you mean? What do you mean? It's interesting. We say that as if it's, it's normal, but it's kind of mysterious. Given that we we don't ascribe, we we speak about space as if it's empty, neutral, inert, but actually space can be charged with a certain feeling, right? a warm atmosphere, a loving atmosphere, uh, an, an unfriendly atmosphere. Sometimes we say, "I went over to talk to them." You could cut the atmosphere with a knife. You know that expression in English? Not English. It means that the, the space felt so, you know, awkward or thick or charged with tension that I could, I could literally feel it. So we see well, the, the way the inner space of mind meets, especially you get a few minds together, right? a few inner spaces together, literally create the feel of the outer space or what we call an, an atmosphere, an ambiance. Right? Ambiance is actually a better word than atmosphere. Do we say ambience in English? 
No, in English we do, yeah. Sometimes I can't remember which is which. You know, because atmosphere is a, is a meteorological term, right, as well. You talk about the humidity in the atmosphere, etc., or the ozone layer or something. But ambiance is literally a, a word that points to the way outer space can be charged by a certain feeling. So you learn to recognize that. If we don't recognize it, we tend to be kind of unconsciously affected by it. And some of us find that we're quite, we're quite strongly affected by the ambience that we find ourselves in. We say, oh, people will describe it in different ways. They say, oh, I kind of picked up the energy of that or something. But actually, one can learn to, 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 to recognize and um, relate to in such a way that one might be very cognizant of, very in touch with the ambience of the situation, but not, uh, not picking it up. And we also then we start to sense the inner ambience. And we were talking about you know, entering into mind states, you know, chitta nupasana, seeing along with the different mind states, recognizing the way our state of ma- our state of mind, our inner ambience, the way our the inner space is colored, charged by a certain feeling, a certain mood, right? and the way that actually uh, creates our, our sense of reality, really. Walk around with a. If there's, you know, if the inner space is charged by a sense of warmth, love, benevolence, care, then one sees plenty of things to care for, to love, to appreciate, to feel tender towards. One walks around with an the inner space charged by uh, suspicion or uh, wariness, or fear. One sees. Lots of things to be afraid of, etc. Once on a, some weeks of walking pilgrimage in the in the, in the Indian Himalayas, um, and one of the things, you know, having spent some years living in the Himalayas, one of the things I, l- from the first moment I set foot in, the, I mean, I, mountains anyway, that's wh- how I came to live in France, I was having um, walked a lot in the Pyrenees when I was a teenager with friends. And then after living in India and living in the mountains, and since then, then uh, our daughter was born in India. Gail didn't want to live in India generally, and not with children particularly. So she wanted to be in Europe, and I wanted to be in the mountains. So we came back to the Pyrenees, and we were in the, lived in the Pyrenees for 10 years before we came to the Moulin. One of the things I love about mountains is the amazing sense of space. High space, rarefied space, especially high-altitude space, right? If you've been up high in the mountains, it's like... A little, it can be a little disorientating. You get above 4,000, get above 5,000, it's like you know, there's not so much oxygen up there. It's very interesting for meditation. And it's interesting that the way the particular kind of um, 
more sort of cosmically described and cosmically represented elements of Buddhism come from the Tibetan and the Bhutanese traditions, the ones that are a bit oxygen starved. <laughs> Something the same ocean. Look out on the ocean. Vast space. Go to the desert. Vast space. Various meditations. The kind of open eye, level eye, wide eye. Some of the Mahamudra meditations. Sitting, just letting in the sense of vastness. Letting in the sense of infinity. Letting in the sense of limitless space. Just and the inner space of consciousness, the outer space that we call the world or the universe, just open to their kind of interpenetration, their non-difference. Just space, space, space. Clumsy naming says inner space, outer space, but wide open experience, space. So I was in this walking... Uh, pilgrimage for some weeks, and I came across a, a sadhu living in some wild place up there. And he was, he was sitting on a rock, he had his little hut behind. I came with my friend, we were walking about three weeks into our walk, came on the corners, sitting like a quintessential yogi, on a rock, on a mountain, bare-chested, Long dreadlocks, covered in ashes, sitting like that. And you know, there's, that's in parts of India, the mountains are not exactly full of sadhus, you know, it's few and far between. But if you go and walk around in the really in the high mountains in, 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 uh, in the Himalayas, you'll come across proper yogis. It's, it's, um, it's pretty far out. Some people doing some pretty far out things up there. I spent some time with a guy at like between five and a half and six thousand, no, about five and a half thousand meters. And in end of October, so we were above the glacier, so the Ganges, the above the Ganga, the to um, Gangotri, and you go up to Tapavan, and then you go up from Tapavan to Gomuk, where the Ganga comes out from the glacier, then on top of the, the, the glacier, there's this place called Tapavan, and there was a few yogis living up there. One guy, who we spent a few days with, naked. You can't imagine how cold it is up there. We, I had like polypro, you know, layers of this, this, and this, and this, and this. A little bit warm in the day when the sun's there, but the moment you know if you've been in, you spent time in the mountains. The moment the sun goes behind the rock, freezing cold, naked. But he went down in the winter, right? He went down when it started to really snow. He went down in the winter, but there was a woman there who hadn't been down for seven years, and she was from Kerala, the very very southern tip of India, and. I asked her, Mataji, what are you doing? What are you doing here? You're from Kerala. She said, I was looking for God, and people kept telling me God is up. So I looked at the map of India. I said, oh, I need to go up. <laughs> so I went up to Bombay. Couldn't find God. So I went up. 
<laughs> up, up, up. And now she's really up, up at the, you know, one of the very highest points. She says, this is far enough. And she'd been up there for seven years. So for, for five months of the year, she's under about six meters of snow in a tiny little cave. Far, not eating. I don't know how she's breathing because she's basically completely, completely, completely snowed in. And then the snow melts, and there's about, about six months of the year where there's, uh, there's not snow. And then she's just feeding people, feeding pilgrims that come. And now, she, then by that stage, she developed a reputation. This is in 93, I think. And so people would send up, you know, devotees would send up donkeys full of rice and lentils and everything for her so that she could feed people. So anybody that made that pilgrimage, she was there feeling very, very simple, very humble. And it's only when you started to ask, oh, what are you doing up here? How long have you been up here? Seven years. Anyway, that's a digression. So this other diet, come around the corner, there's the yogi on the rock. Let me stop and you know, have a bit of yogi chat. Like you do. We were also wandering, I also had dreadlocks in those days, and I was also wandering around in an orange lungi and, uh, on my pilgrimage. I said, Swamiji, because he's, he's there sitting out and looking out, drop of the rock, and kind of down to the valley, and long way you can see. I said, Swamiji, when you look out, what do you see? He says, I see myself everywhere with different names and forms. I see myself. Mountains, forest, plains, villages, smoke rising. I see myself in different names and forms. And just sitting there with him, looking out at this, this sort of display of life. Very touching. Nasagadatta, another famous Hindu teacher, says it very beautifully, right? That famous line of his where he says, Love tells me I'm everything. No, the other way around. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. That's a pretty free relationship to space. Not fixated on the one or the other. We, can, we easily get seduced, different traditions actually, get to build their, their, uh, their understanding or their teaching or their approach on one or the other. But actually, it can, you know, when we contemplate space, really, it can go in any direction. Right? That sense that we've been exploring, you explore the sense of self, you go in, the sense of dissolution, to the way all experience can kind of collapse into stillness, collapse into emptiness, collapse into nothingness, nothing, and the the oh, the relief of not having to generate and present and manage and control and manifest a whole world of me all the time, and. Just myself. So, uh, with different names and forms. A sense of opening, the open space, the interpenetration of what we call inner space and outer space until it's all included. Uh, identity normally is fixed in the, what we call this, spa- this location. 
this place, this body, this mind, this me. Identification that has a very definite outline and it's Martin-shaped. And when we really contour, when we let our mind freely explore the space in which experience is happening, then we find that it can it can uh, it can change in all kinds of ways. Sometimes we have that experience in a simple way, maybe, but but can be a, a, a nevertheless an impactful way, where our sense of physical space can just can sort of morph and change in meditation. Sometimes we're sitting, and oh, just feel abs- just like we kind of disappearing. We feel very 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 small. In, insignificant, thin, like we could, could just sort of be blown into invisible dust. And maybe other moments where we we feel vast, so vast that if we move our little finger, we might cause an earthquake. But really, we feel like, oh, I'm, I don't really fit in the meditation room anymore. No? You can have, have that experience that your body just feels like it's massive, vast, expansive. We also even feel like we need to open our eyes and check. Are my arms really out the windows? You know? And of course, body's just staying this size, but it just, it's, it's, a, it's not, a, not a particularly special experience in itself, but it's, it's just showing us the something of the, the kind of limitless potential of our relationship to space, of our understanding of space, of our way of meeting life spaciously. And that line then of Nisargadatta is you know, able to allow myself to kind of dissolve into space. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And simultaneously that sense of expanding into a kind of a solidarity with an intimacy with all of this, all of you, all of them, all of it. Love dissolves the boundary. Love fills the space. That's what we love about love, right? When we say, what do we mean? We say, I love you. I love this. It means it's like I kind of I expand to include it. I take it into me. So ordinarily, here we are, sitting in space on this spaceship Earth. And yet so, so many ways to, uh, yeah, to, to contemplate just, just this, just this sitting here, just this being here, just this humanness, just these desires, just these uh, movements of mind, just this, uh, these appearances and sounds and sights of the world but in a way that we can disappear into and become. 
in a way that we can expand into and know ourselves as. We might know ourselves as fundamentally part of the universe. We might know ourselves as the whole universe. All of this myself, just with different names and forms, appearances. Many ways, endless ways of knowing ourselves. Space is infinite. Experience is infinite. Mind is infinite. So our ways of knowing ourselves, our ways of knowing life, our ways of responding are infinite. This is the promise and the real possibility of our practice. So I wish you a spacious evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.